Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. You know, I think there's lots of reasons why people get into business. Yeah, in previous shows, we've, we've talked about this idea about the accidental entrepreneur and yet why so many people are drawn to go and, and get into their own business. Well, that was the case for my next guest, who's Jonathan Clayton. You know, John's a lovely bloke. <laughs> he's, um, and you'll tell by the interview that I, I just really enjoyed chatting to him. He's, he's just a lovely bloke and he's really generous with sharing his story and his time. But I really loved his story. I mean, he, he runs a marketing business around affiliate marketing. It's professional services, right? And, and we've spoken and dealt with a lot of professional services companies. But he goes into some of the intricacies around building a business of quality and value and how to ultimately sell it and do that successfully. You know, he covers all sorts of topics like the difference between portfolio versus, versus platform acquisitions niching down versus cross-selling as growth strategies, you know, advantages and disadvantages, why you'd look at these different things and why he chose the avenues that he chose. You know, he talks a lot about getting courted by buyers and how to manage that process, what it's like to, and, and how important it is to get the right kind of people around you to support you on each stage of that journey. But really the right formula of what goes into finding the right buyer. There are just so many insights in this uh, in this interview, and and once again, I mean, John's just been so generous with his time, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I know you'll get a lot out of this episode too. This is John Clayton. John, welcome to the Buy Grow Sell podcast. Hey, Simon, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, indeed. Very much looking forward to unpacking your story. Um, you know, I, I know we're going to um, to get into things and talk about your business, which, look, ultimately, I know you you went through and you started a company, you built it up and you, you've exited, um, which was streamlined. But maybe you could kick things off and just, I don't know, give us a little bit of your background and where you came from and, and kind of what led you to get into this space. Yeah, so I... I, I uh... <laughs> I found my way into the world of partner marketing or affiliate marketing, which is what my, my company Streamline was, was built around um, right out of college. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I landed a, an internship um, sales team at a, at a company um, in, where I was going to university and um, the, while I was still in school. And, and uh, you know, a couple months into doing the internship, the VP of sales said, hey, how would you like a job? You know, still, I hadn't graduated yet, but she wanted to bring me into the sales team. So she liked me and thought I was doing a good job. And so I did that and just ended up in, in this uh, interesting, very, very uh, you know, unique and specialized industry and, and uh, never looked back. Like I, so I, I spent early part of my career at a, at a sort of uh, an agency or a, a network that powered a lot of these affiliate programs, um, which we can talk about later. Uh, and then I moved in-house to a big brand that kind of recruited me out of that company that brought me in, in-house to, uh, to build up their their program essentially their partnership program um and so i did that for uh, about five years and uh did really well and excelled at it and you know was sort of climbing the corporate ladder and you know going to that pace and you know i had i was a director at a public company when i was 26 you know i was, was just doing a lot of like really good things with the career uh but quite frankly i was miserable and i didn't really want to do the corporate thing i was just, just always was sort of itching to maybe do something on my own or just it, it just didn't feel like the right path for me um and so I yeah, ended up starting, starting the agency out of kind of an accident. I, I didn't really want to, I didn't mean to start an agency. I think every agency owner that you talk to never really intends to do it. It's sort of it is a byproduct of, uh, you know, some sort of accident that happens. But I, I wanted to, 
after five years of doing the corporate thing, I said, hey, I'm going to go consult for a little bit. Um, you know, I want to just take a breather and figure out, you know, what makes sense for me and just take a step back from the day to day of things in, in the corporate life. And I went and traveled. And so I was, I was consulting uh, for, for a few months as I was traveling around. And th that, that consulting led to one client and another one kind of came on and two or three came on. And I said, well, maybe I should get some help to help me out with, with these clients. And so I you know, brought somebody on back in the States and I was, I was over in actually your neck of the woods. I was in Australia and New Zealand and Southeast Asia kind of doing this. And before I knew it, I had like four people working for me and I said, well, I better get back to the U S to check on them and make sure that things are going well. And then I never left again and so on and so forth. And the business grew out of that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was not intentional. There was never any design behind like, Hey, let's go do this. There's going to be some lucrative path. It was really just a, a, an accident that was fortuitous in the end. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, it's funny how um, it's funny how common that story is. I, I think how people just wind up in business, and 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 it, I've asked myself a lot, like why that happens, and you know, I, th I think to some degree, you know, you do see a lot of people coming out of corporate, and and maybe the environment's changed, and you know, a corporate restructure or whatever, and they've kind of almost been forced to do their own thing. But but I'm I'm interested in what you're saying about corporate kind of not feeling right. So I, I, I sort of get the sense that maybe in your situation, there was a bit more of a calling to do something different already that may have kind of led to it? Yeah, I, I think, uh, so, so I lasted as long as I did in the corporate world because I had a lot of leeway and flexibility in my role. Like they sort of, yeah, I, I was run, I built a, so when I was at this company, I built a, a very sizable percentage of their revenue as, as its sort of own line of business and what I was doing. And it was, uh, I was the only one that knew what was happening. It was, you know, it was a single person shop uh, but we were like 30% of the company's revenue. So it was, it was incredibly important and strategic. Um, but I was left alone to kind of do what I wanted to do. And, and that, that was why I, I stuck around for a long time. But I always had, I think I've always had an issue with, I don't know if it's a problem with authority or something like that. I've always been a bit of a rebel and I, I just kind of wanted to march my own beat and, and do my own thing in life. And, and I think that calling in, in business is sort of leads itself to an entrepreneurial mindset. Like I, for better or for worse, I don't like taking direction from people. Um, I like doing it my way. And and oftentimes that's not the right way to do it, but like I still enjoy that control, right? I think a lot of people kind of have that mindset. And, it, you know, the, the entrepreneurial um, path just is is kind of perfect, I think, for, for people that, uh, you know, operate that way um, from what I've, I've seen, right? I can totally relate. <laughs> In fact, I think everybody at our team, we, we kind of, commonly joke that we're all corporate SKPs, right? We just don't don't like being told what to do, certainly don't like political kind of machinations and just yeah, it just just doesn't work for some, right? And I think I think we, you know, you gotta go beat a different path and and yeah, you know, it's hard work. But I think I, I like what you say about, you know, it's not always the right thing because, you know, I don't know how I've lost count of how many mistakes I've made in my businesses, but I probably power through them with enthusiasm and and just sheer desire to keep doing my own thing. So, uh, so yeah, I guess you've got to find a balance in there somewhere, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, you know, learning, learning from mistakes is really the best thing that I've, uh, you know, done. As long as you're able to actually learn from them, right? Like, you're, you're bound to make mistakes, especially if you first time starting out doing something, first businesses, like, I mean, the amount, as you said, the amount of times you, that I messed up and did something wrong, I mean, it was, it's endless, right? But you know, you need to learn from them and you, and you apply it and you don't do it again. Like that's, that's where the real learning comes from. And I think you, and you grow so quickly when that happens, especially when it's like you and your bottom line and your money and everything that's your, you on the table, right? Uh, you have to adapt and, and, and learn from things. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, you kicked off your business. It sounded like you, you know, you kind of really just flew straight into it. You know, you had a client and then you started growing. So you so say fundamentally you're bootstrapping, right? I imagine when you first started, you must have taken a dip in income and all the rest of it. Like, what what were those early days like? And and yeah, was it a scramble yeah. to kind of? Yeah. So 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 I, I was fortunate, and and I, I again, I think my my business that I did, it was again, we were sort of a ultimately streamlined became a, an agency that was tech enabled. We had a sort of tech infrastructure that we built out down the road, but we were essentially providing service. And and what. I did to land our for my first couple of clients and really my my first client was my prior company. As I said to you, like we were uh, the business that I built within that business was was incredibly important. It was 30, 40% of revenue. It was very strategic for them. And no one knew what the hell I did. 
So when I said when I left, I said, "Look, I'm going to go consult. I want a break from the corporate world. Um, you can pay me this much to continue to run this business for you, or you can good luck, and you know you got two weeks." Um, and <laughs> that was actually a pretty easy negotiation from that perspective. So I, I actually my my take home was roughly about the same when I started out, which made it a lot a little bit easier to do it now. That was until I started hiring employees, and then you had cash flow issues, and you know the the nightmare that that became down the road. But like initially, I actually had a nice income going into it, um, and, and I decreased my actual take home pay as I, as the business grew because you just have to keep reinvesting everything into that type of business. And as you bootstrap it, like your cash flow is is not there. I always joke to people like you know even if you say you have a million dollars in profit for a business, I promise you that most business owners are not pulling a million dollars out every year. Like it's just sitting in the bank. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly right. Keeping your keeping your powder dry for all those things you know are coming. Yeah, and and so what? T- talk to me a bit about that sort of ramp up. I mean, your first client, and that's an awesome place to come from that you can just pick up your previous employer as your first client. Um, but but what did that first sort of year or two look like in terms of that 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 growth trajectory? Yeah, so so we were um, we we landed a couple of sizable clients really early on, which I think was was really important for the business. And in our industry again was it's very it's it's a large industry, so the affiliate marketing and partner marketing space. It's a digital marketing medium. It, it actually represents about seventeen or eighteen percent of all online e commerce. Sort of is driven by affiliate or, or partner marketing. It's a sizable percentage of of online revenue, but there are a select few number of people who actually know how to work in the space and, and especially on the brand side, know how to build these types of affiliate programs. It's actually very, very specialized and very niche. And so we were able to get some really big clients early on in the first couple of years um, that sort of propelled us forward in terms of driving scale and velocity for the business. So we, we landed like Expedia and T-Mobile and Microsoft like as, as a 5, 10, 15 person company, which Usually, you have no business working with those types of firms, right? At that, at that size, but because we're we were so specialized in, in an important industry, um, we were able to land those clients. So, so we grew really, really quickly, which was great. And we went, you know, the first I, I don't know two, three years in, we were 15, 20 people, something like that. Um, but with that and the growth and the acceleration of that, it was it was really challenging managing that growth through uh, sort of bootstrapping it. Um, you know, we're a service company, so. You know, we we do work for a client for 30 days and we build them. And then if you're working with the Microsofts and the Expedia's of the world, you know, they pay you net 30 if you're very lucky. It's usually closer to net 60, net 90, and they're always late and they always have some reason for it. So you had, basically had to front cash for about three or four months of operating expenses before we saw a dollar come in um, from the work. So so in growing that rapidly and hiring that many people, it, it became really difficult. So basically, I didn't take money out of the company. I didn't pay myself for 18 months, I think, during the, the super high growth phase. So you just kind of have to do that at certain phases to, to allow for that. Yeah, indeed, indeed. You know, and I probably should have asked this question earlier, but just, just for the uninitiated, can you just give us, what, like, what is affiliate marketing and kind of what, what was the core of what your business did? Yeah, so, so uh, the premise of an affiliate, uh, affiliate marketing is, is simple in practice, but very complicated in, in, in actual reality. But essentially, an affiliate can be any sort of online entity that, uh, partners with a brand uh, to drive customers to that brand in exchange for uh, compensation. Um, so uh, a blog, for example, that is writing about uh, a pair of shoes that uh, that blogger really likes and uh, it has a link in that article um, and, and that will go to a retailer or a brand. And if a consumer is reading that blog and they click on that link and they go to the brand, they buy that pair of shoes or anything from that brand, the blog gets a commission and a cut of the sale for driving that transaction. And that's the most basic form of it. There are thousands of different types of affiliates and they operate. They could be influencers on social media. They could be large cashback um, coupon sites, voucher sites, uh, big mass media publications that have millions of readers. It, it, it take a lot of different uh, varieties. But essentially what, what we did as an agency and a service provider is that we would work with a brand and we would go out and find those affiliates for the brand and manage the relationships on their behalf. So we would go and work with hundreds or thousands of partners for brands and build up very sizable and scalable programs, just manage the entire relationship for them um, and, and handle the sort of service element of those uh, programs. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's it's something I, I've sort of been familiar with, but not, you know, I don't need a very, very high level. I, I think um, 
yeah, it's it's very really interesting space. Um, so, uh, what what was the model like? I mean, you just mentioned there that large clients paying, you know, thirty, sixty, ninety days, etc. But did did you typically was it sort of fixed fee projects? Did you have some sort of ongoing revenue stream? Like, what what was the typical kind of engagement like? Yeah, so we always did uh, usually long term retainers uh, plus uh, performance on. Uh, performance fees for us as an agency based on how well the program that we built did, right? So um, it might look something like a brand would pay us $10,000, $15,000 a month as a fixed retainer. And then we would get uh, 1% of the incremental revenue that we drive through that affiliate channel. So if we take you know, we take the ch- affiliate channel from a million dollars a month in revenue to $2 million a month, right? We've done a million in incremental, we get 1% of that. And that's so we're billing 20 grand a month in that case, right? And that's kind of the model that we worked under. Yeah, cool. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And it was it was fairly reliable in terms of you know so, so we did we did longer retainers. It wasn't really project oriented work. I think in the service world, I think it's really complicated in in, in managing and forecasting that when you're doing service and short term contracts. Like we even if we did you know do something for six months and then the client decided to not keep working with us, like we always had longer term engagements. It's just it's just very very difficult to forecast even hiring and personnel and everything else that goes into that if you're working on two three month engagements. Like and we had a lot of clients. Uh, approach us asking for shorter term things. We just we always shut shut away from it. It just wouldn't make sense for us to to put the resources behind it for for that sort of a, sort of an engagement. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. And and how long typically would clients stay with you? I mean, or did did you have some that were just ongoing, or what was there a typical cycle they went through? Yeah, we had a really really long retention rate. And granted, the, the company was in business for uh, just over seven years before we were acquired, so. Um, we didn't have a, a massive history, but we had about a 95% client retention rate through, through our initial contracts. So, you know, you, we basically, and, and really kind of how you know, I look at the business, like with our sales, marketing, acquisition costs and everything else. So we didn't make a lot of money the first year of working with a client that basically covers everything else, right? The profit is made year two, three, four. Um, so we had some big clients that stuck with us for, you know, five, six years um you know through the transaction or still with us today the new firm that i'm at um but we we did really well in terms of retaining clients we did exceptional work and that was an important part of it we made sure that we were actually delivering what the clients were asking for this was a you know very legitimate practice in terms of the the work that we were delivering and so um the retention rates were really high just because of that and again it's kind of like it's this interesting industry that is very specialized so even if you are a brand and hey i'm paying an agency a good amount of money but i may want to bring that in house Finding somebody that actually knows what they're doing to replace an agency that has four or five people working on it, historical context, data, everything else, it's actually very tough to do that. So we were fortunate there wasn't a lot of um, potential for that to happen. The only other option is you potentially go to a competitor. And really, like we were kind of you know leaders in the space with along with the company that I ended up selling to. Um, so <laughs> you didn't have too many choices in terms of where you would go. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about. You know, you, you so seven years. You know, you start this company. You know, talked a little bit about those early days and what that's like. And I think you know anyone listening to this who's done a startup, I think, really kind of feels that in their bones, right? Those first couple of years of running hard, and you start employing people, and you're growing, and you're getting traction, and it's exciting. But there's a lot of hard work in that, right? I mean, what what was it like as the kind of founder leader experience? You know, t- typically, I-, I know with my own business, we run a service-based business, you know, Exit Advisory Group's our core core business. And I, I know what kind of a focus it put on me as the leader and, you know, the amount of effort and work. And, you know, there's somewhere in there, there's this transition of you've got to start handing things off to other people because you're just overloaded. I mean, well, that was certainly my experience. I mean, what, what, what was that like for you? So uh, very similar. I mean, I think I, I had a hard, as, as, as pretty much every founder will tell you, it's very hard to let go of things um, what, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, right? Like you want to kind of have your, your hands and everything. You want to be controlling things. The reality is like there are people that are much better at doing certain roles than, than you are. And like it, you have to eventually learn the hard way um, how that plays out. So, so my story is actually kind of interesting in how that happened. I, I, I was very much... Um, similar to, to you, like I try to do everything for you know, the first four or five years or so. And then um, uh, what, I, was, I was working like just crazy amounts. I was, I was stressing myself out and you know, the company again, high growth phases, everything else you know, was going well, but I was just, I was burning myself out. And I ended up getting, I ended up uh, 
I, one day kind of waking up and my throat was just like, like really hurting. And, uh, I was, I couldn't, I couldn't like get, like, I was having a hard time even like drinking water. It was just like, I was just really not feeling good. It was really, but I was exhausted. We had a bit like a big RFP coming up or something like that. And we were actually we had an offsite for the whole company that we were doing like the next weekend. So I just kind of pushed through it and it just, just dealt with it. I couldn't really eat much. It was just, and I wasn't sick. It was just like a, it was just, my throat was just killing me. And we ended up going to this offsite and I, and I showed up and the team was like, you don't look good, man. Like this is not what's going on with you. Right. And we were up in the, the mountains at this cabin and I, I stuck it through for a couple of nights, but they were really like, look, you got to go to the hospital. Like, this is not okay. Cause I was, I couldn't eat anything. It was just at that point, it was just like, it was not in good shape. So ended up in the hospital and, um, uh, what had happened for some, somehow, like I ended up uh, with a, a tear in my esophagus. Um, yeah, it was, uh, is what had happened. Cause I had, oh, sorry, I should have backed it. I forgot, forgot the best part of the story. So I'd gotten shingles like a month beforehand. So, so I got shingles from the stress. So, so, so I was a little bit confused on this one. So I had shingles, kind of got over it. The rash went away. It was awful, but that it was not good. It was not a good place. And then what had actually happened by the time I ended up in the hospital, the shingles had actually spread in my throat, like inside of my throat, and that it had torn the esophagus and kind of ruptured. So I ended up in the ER and the doctor sat me down and I was, he was asking me, hey, what's going on? Are you stressed out? You know, what's happening? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm working 16 hours a day and I have been for the past four years. I haven't taken a break. I'm extremely stressed out. And he was like, he sat me down. I was like, dude, like, this is not good. Like, you could have died. Right? <laughs> really, because my my uh, electrolytes were all over the place. I, I hadn't gotten enough fluids in me. I was really in a bad, bad shape. And I, I spent a, a couple of days in the yard ER just kind of recovering. And after that, it was like, you have to slowly work your way back into, into working full-time thing. You have to take time off, you know, so I did. And I, and I, and I recovered for a couple months. And during that period of time, all the things that I was controlling, had, somebody had to do them, right? And so uh, the, the rest of the team kind of picked them up. And, and funny enough, uh, of course, everybody that's been through this will know, by the time I got back and started taking over those, those roles and those responsibilities, they were being done in a much more effective way than when I was doing them. And so I said, okay, fine. You guys can continue to run with things that way. Shame it took illness to kind of, <laughs> you know, to, to get that all to happen, right? <laughs> it's funny though. I mean, a lot of people have that sort of scenario. It's like they, they, they eventually, they, they work so hard until they burn out, which is really what it was. I mean, it was, it was my body essentially giving up and saying, you need a break, dude. But it, a lot of entrepreneurs have that happen to them. And there's, there's a reckoning that happens and like, Fortunately, I had an amazing team around me that like picked up the slack and just ran with it. Um, but you know, oftentimes it can be uh, not not a good outcome, right? When that happens, so um, I was I was fortunate. But yeah, this is it's something a lot of entrepreneurs go through. And, and I think uh, the only lesson I would say is like you you just have to you can't I mean, people can't work at that clip for an indefinite period of time. Like maybe if you're Elon, right? Like there's <laughs> there's some people that can do it, but like most folks, you you will eventually burn out. You won't get, you, you know, make yourself very unhealthy and it just will not be a good result at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I look, totally agree. I mean, having had all this experience, I mean, is there, how, how would you do things differently? I mean, it's, 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 it's a hard thing to hand things over, particularly as you're kind of growing and you're putting on new people and all this sort of stuff. But like, is there a, if you had your time again, you know, is there a, how would you approach it? Yeah, I, I think the way that I would look at it is understanding what your strengths and, and weaknesses are as, as an entrepreneur, right? You're building a business, there, there are certain elements of it, right? You have your finance stuff and you have sales and marketing and you have your, in our, our case, we had you know, client work, um, you have HR personnel stuff, right? The major things that sort of uh, make up a company. I'm very good at sales and marketing. Like that's, that's what I do. I'm good at positioning, strategy, that sort of stuff. I'm horrible at finance uh i'm i'm probably the worst manager on the planet when it comes to actually managing people and dealing with personnel so like and i, and I knew that all about myself right i knew that going into it like everybody if you really look in the mirror you kind of know what you're good at you know what your strengths and your weaknesses are right now of course the entrepreneur mindset like you think you can do anything because that's why we get into doing businesses in the first place and so you kind of trick yourself into thinking yeah i can do it. i can run finance let's say it's not that hard it's quickbooks right you can just plug it in there and you know, you, you, so the, the, the way that I would do it differently is, is just, I would, I would understand what I was good at and, and, and put 110% of my energy into that, which would have, I think in hindsight, had I just focused on that side of things, the company would have been much more successful long run. 
and I would have, you know, outsourced those, those roles to people that were good at them. And even like the finance stuff, it's, it's a bookkeeper. It's not that hard, right? You find somebody it's, it's, it's really not that challenging, at least for the size of business that we were at the time, um, as, as opposed to trying to control everything. And like, that would save a lot of pain and, and time and, and everything else. And I think, I think just playing to your strengths is super important. Yeah. I think that's fantastic advice. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's funny how often I see this issue. Um, and I was chatting to a prospective client yesterday, same, same sort of thing. You know, the husband was building and just couldn't, you know, didn't want to hire people and didn't want the responsibility of hiring people and feeling like they were responsible for their, for their, um, you know, their staff's well-being. And, you know, what happens if the company doesn't fail and they lose their job and I'd feel responsible for that and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, the, in my experience, uh, when we've hired the right people, based around values and culture and things like that, I've never, ever regretted it. Those people have come in and just done amazing things and things I never expected. And I've, as I say, never, ever looked back and gone, oh, geez, we probably didn't need to do that higher. Like, they've actually proved valuable in ways I didn't expect. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think you, I think there's something you touched on there, like the the right culture fit is in that, in that higher, and especially like earlier stages of a business too, like, it's so important, and, I, and I'm very fortunate that I, again I had I had people that I brought in who were who were exactly that right fit. They they sort of rolled with the company throughout the years, and they grew with it, and they were adaptable. And I think even you know earlier stage with those hires, they have to be somewhat entrepreneurial themselves, right? They have to be willing to tackle a million different things at once and uh, kind of pivot it, you know, whenever they need to. But um, finding those those right roles is is, is super critical. And um, I wish I had I wish I had found more of them early on. I wish I had relied more on them. I think it was still like a, you know, this give and take of like, can I actually delegate? Do I want to control things? It was, but I did have some really good people in my court. And, and conversely, I also had some like very bad hires that like I stuck around with for a long time because I thought, ah, well, you know, we'll make this work. And, you know, they have the right pedigree and experience, right? But then just like ended up personality wise or culture fit or whatever, just were not the right choices, right? And so, those are other things that you learn down the road after having experience doing it, right? You, you know the people, like it's kind of in your gut. You feel them and you do that first interview. You're like, this person's going to be a rock star. And you also, and, and, I, and every single time I was like, yeah, I know they're going to be great. And they were, and they, they lasted and they were awesome. They were fantastic to work with. And then I also have those ones where it's like, I don't know, kind of in the back of your head, you're thinking like, maybe this isn't the right choice. But then you know, the other people on the team are like, oh, they're good. You know, they'll be, they'll be okay. They have experience, whatever. And then it ends up being a nightmare. So I just trust my gut on hires. That's that's something that served me well down down the road. But learned the hard way again. Yeah, I, once again, can't, couldn't agree more. You know, my my wife and I, my wife's the co-founder of our business, and in fact, we've been in every business we've ever done, we've done together. And it's you know, hindsight is a pain in the ass sometimes, right? Because you look back and go, man, it was obvious. We knew it, right? <laughs> Always. <laughs> So, so talk to me a little bit here, like, you know, you've had this, this experience, you've been unwell, you've no doubt been shaken a little bit by it, it's made you rethink um, perhaps some priorities and whatnot. Um, when did the idea of selling the business kind of really start to crystallize? Yeah, so you know, we we've been approached by people after, I don't know, even a year or two in, in business, so we'd always had other agencies usually kind of like calling on us, right? They, they didn't do what we did and they want us to sort of add that um, capability into their, into, their, uh, into their clients or uh, our competitors in the space. So there, there were a couple that were larger than us that were um, you know, trying to get larger, right? To sort of doing roll-ups and, and things like that. And so we'd, we'd had conversations and sort of entertained it. And I, and I would say like, we, we, we always, I think it's, I think it's always a good um decision to have conversations and to like high level discuss things. Hey, you know, let, tell me about what you're trying to do from, you know, in terms of learning about your acquirers and um, just so you can understand the market and, and sort of understand what they're looking for. Even if you're not necessarily interested in doing a transaction right now, like just kind of go into it with an open mind, understand valuations, how, how the things sort of work so that when you are kind of really ready to sell, you have a lot of background and experience as opposed to like doing it the first time you have those initial conversations and you are inexperienced at doing it. So, so we, we flirted a lot for years. Um, I think by like the time we sold, I think I looked at like 20 some odd LOIs, right? Like wow. you know, wow, versions of them, right. From different companies, right. We, we, we looked at a lot of them. 
um, before we pulled the trigger. And in hindsight, it's probably it's probably too many, but um, we we at least were we were having conversations with every potential company that could acquire us for for years before we did a deal. Um, whether that was again folks in our space, a strategic entity, uh, even some of the technology partners that we worked with, like we were we were talking to them and sort of exploring things. And um, by the time I was sort of ready to go into it, I, I had a very good idea of like what we were actually worth, um, you know, who the players were, who we could really you know potentially partner with. Um, and, and the sort of structural way in which all these deals operate. So it's it's not something where you're going in, uh, you know, with with uh, limited knowledge of it. It was it was you know at that point I kind of knew what I was in in store for, and um, you know that was that was helpful. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a lot of LOIs. I mean, uh, you know, in our core business, we we've had a lot of clients come to us because they've had that proverbial tap on the shoulder and then they've done a lot of courting and talking and they end up investing a lot of time and then you know after six nine months of doing this dance with prospective buyers they either get lowballed or the buyer pulls out because they've had a change of strategy or something and so a lot of people i've had a lot of business owners who feel super burned by that whole thing and they've just wasted so much time and effort um and of course spending time on these things can be a distraction from the core business so I'm curious about, like, were you handling a lot of that yourself? Was that an impact on the core business or had you already built yourself out? Like, what what was it like for that whole experience for you? It, it, it definitely was a distraction, um, but I think it, it it paid dividends in the end. I think it was like, as I was having those conversations, it was, it, it was as much for me, it was learning about the process as it was for you know, potentially getting a deal done, I think, in those early stages. But you're right. I mean, it can't, it's exhausting to go through the, the conversations. Um, every time we looked at, at the, the sort of offers, we, we kind of, um, we were either, we were growing at such a tremendous clip that like, we, I just didn't feel they were high enough, right? It's really what it came down to, right? We would talk to folks, they would say, okay, well, and, and to, to give everyone context, agencies or service related businesses, we, we had a tech component, but really we're a service company in, in almost every case you're acquired on a multiple of your EBITDA. Um, right. And that's that's kind of the, the industry standard for, for our, our world. And the way that that works is you look at like your trailing 12 month average. Um, generally, that's how everybody does it. If you get a bank to finance it, which most people are doing, they have to do a quality of earnings report, which looks at your trailing 12 months. And it, it's just a very standard process. And because we were growing so quickly, like we would we'd sign business and we'd like hire people or we'd hire ahead of it. And so like our, our trailing 12 months, if we had stopped and just sat flat, we would have looked really nicely profitable. And you know, you probably get a nice high multiple on that. But because we kept investing and doubling down, our trailing 12 months always didn't look great. If you look at the sort of forward looking run rate, it looked really positive, but acquirers just wouldn't do a deal based on that. So we would get offers that were like not insignificant. And it made you think about, hey, maybe I should just do this or you know, maybe it's somewhere in the ballpark, but, and then we would, you know, we'd get another like giant client that signed on and it was just, we, we kind of pulled, pulled away from them um, when, as we were, as we were looking at things. And that's why we had so many LOIs. It was just because like people realized we were growing really quickly. They wanted to come in and kind of scoop up the business. We entertained the conversations. They put numbers on paper. We could sort of see what it looked like. And then again, it just, it just didn't make sense in, in, at the time when we were going through the conversations. Um, uh, until we finally decided to, to pull trigger. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a really interesting conundrum because I've, um, once again, had clients in a similar, similar space, right? They're growing and saying, well, hang on a minute. Like, if I hang on to yeah. my business for another year, and, and that's almost a little bit of a trap for business owners as well because if your objective is to exit, then, you know, at some point you actually have to form a deal. But, um, you know, how you value that future curve. And, in fact, I, I interviewed somebody else on the uh, podcast yesterday who analyzes customer purchases and buying habits and everything else to build more detailed forecasts so that they can kind of net present value that to today and so it's, it is a fascinating piece right because it's always you're, you're selling the promise of tomorrow um so i've got so many questions for you actually so if if i if i step on anything that's that's confidential please just let me know but First question is: Can you give us a sense of of the size of your company around this time? Like, I mean, just broadly, like seven figure turnover, eight figure turnover, that sort of stuff. Is that? Yeah, yeah. So, so we were at the time we well, the time we exited, we were uh, a little over thirty five full time employees. We were mid seven figures in in top line revenue, and we were 
We were really, really, really profitable. Um, we built the business very in a very lean manner. I didn't have a lot of HR and you know marketing folks and stuff like that. It was basically just the the people doing work in the account. So we were we were close to fifty percent profit margins, right? Oh, so wow, um, you know, so so you know, from an EBIT EBIT number, um, and uh, yeah, so we were we were um, the right sort of size to be acquired by uh, the, the firm we ended up selling to. There's again in the service world, there's like if you're less than a million dollars in EBITDA, people will buy you, but you're going to get like a two or three X multiple is pretty, pretty standard. Maybe may slightly higher than that if you're really growing and you have some cool stuff, but it's it's pretty low. Once you cross the million dollar threshold, things got to open up and they change because you can get banks to actually finance that. Um, there's, you know, getting to a million dollars profit is, is a heavy lift in, in general. And so there's there's very much a likelihood that's going to continue. You're going to get a higher multiple from that. Um, you know, in, in again, our world, maybe it's four to six or somewhere in that neighborhood. As you get higher than that, it starts to go up maybe seven, eight. And then if you, once you get to four or 5 million, then you're, you become kind of a portfolio type of company, right? You are the, the larger portfolio that's acquired by a P firm. Um, and then you go out and you buy, uh, other, other firms in your industry or, or, or ancillary industry. So we were the right size to be scooped up by a portfolio company, which is what happened. Um, so, so we were, we were definitely not big enough to be our own platform. Um, but we were a, a very attractive target to kind of like bolt on initially to the, to the deal that we ended up doing. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's super helpful. And, and I think for anyone listening to this, like those, those thresholds of size are, are really important to pay attention to. I, I know in many of the transactions we've done, um, and certainly m- many of the private equity firms that we we've worked with or speak to on a regular basis, so many of them will say, "Look, we we don't even want to look at it unless they're doing a minimum two million EBITDA. Like it's just a, it's just not worth doing for the for them." And so, you know, size size fundamentally matters when it comes to business valuations. And 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 the reason for that too, just just for context, is that like it, it from it. And, and now I'm on the buy side now, so I can talk through these things fairly intelligently. Like the amount of uh, money and effort that it takes to acquire a company, whether you are five hundred thousand EBITDA or three million EBITDA is pretty much the same. Like there's actually not that much variance in it. And so if you're going to spend your energy as, as an acquirer to go and buy somebody like, and you have five options, you're, you're buying the one that has probably the biggest impact and it's probably gonna be the highest EBITDA number. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's bang for buck. And, you know, we, we did a transaction recently and the, the buyers, you know, we, we had a great, good relationship with them and they were saying their budget for due diligence was $700,000. Um, on this particular transaction, they told me they didn't quite hit it, but they were certainly over half a mil. Yeah. So you know that's a lot of cash to spend on a due diligence process. So as you say, I mean, you've got to start weighing that against the actual benefit of the transaction itself, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's you know really how how most acquirers look at it. So again, there's there are certain thresholds depending on the industry and and vertical that you're in, but um, at least in our our space, like you know, there 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 are very clear guidelines around you know what you need to get to and. You know, we we were we were well within the the nice sort of middle of the range there, and um, yeah, I I knew in in my heart that like I didn't want to go and be that larger portfolio company that would then you know I didn't want to try to drag the business to four or five million EBIT. Like I, I think I maybe could have gotten there in another ten years, but like it would have taken a long time. Um, and and you know I think that again we can talk about like post-transaction if, if you want to get into that at some point but like yeah i get to do the stuff now that i want to do as opposed to being like the founder ceo of a portfolio company and, and doing that I, I was done being or i wanted to take a break from being the ceo for a little bit so it was the right time to do it and and what a common experience too you know so many business owners they just they are usually good at one element of the business and they're sick of doing everything else so it's uh you know once again very very common um for for those listening but um one of the questions i wanted to ask you um it seems to me that Streamline was quite niched in its service, right? I mean, you were a specialist in this field of affiliate marketing. And and one of the questions I hear coming up a lot from business owners is, you know, they kind of hit this crossroad in their in their growth trajectory and, and they're asking themselves, do I should I start cross-selling different services to our client base? Or should we double down on our niche and and try to sell more of what we do, or you know, less products, less services to more people. You know, just keep keep going hard down that um, down that channel. And and I'm curious if you've got any thoughts around those two strategies and how they might play into a transaction and ultimately business value. 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's an interesting uh, conundrum that a lot of a lot of business owners get themselves into. Like, I I would say, um, you know, we 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 thought about different business lines a number of different times as we were running the company, and what we always landed on is that we we were again specialized in niche and, and it was in this partnership world, and we we couldn't really think of another offering that would make a ton of sense to the, the clients we were working with and the people that we were working with at those, at those clients. So for example, if we would have started offering to do paid search, for example, our, our contacts at the, at the client are not the people that are running paid search. We also would have gone from competing with other agencies in our space that were somewhere around the same size as us, maybe twice as large, but to, to go and competing with, you know, thousand employee companies, right, that have uh, you know, AOR engagements with <laughs> these firms. And, and you, you start to really tread into some dangerous waters there with, with that type of offering. So the, the only way we would have done another line of business is if we would have found something that was ancillary that made a ton of sense to sell directly to the, the contacts that we're either working with or maybe one step removed from them that would have been a very easy sell that was sort of similar to our industry and could, could be cross-sold really easily and effectively. Um, and we were we kind of knew a little bit about what that that industry would have been and, and um, we're doing it now at the current firm. But uh, at the time, we just we never ended up doing it. And I think we also didn't want to distract ourselves from what was working really well. Like we had a by the time we were really rolling, like we had a really solid model. We knew exactly what we were doing. We knew the service. We had everything ironed out. And to take your energy away from that, to go and try to build some new process, which is a, a new line of business, it's going to take new operational procedures it's gonna you have to build everything from scratch again like you would have to take a mass amount of your your energy and effort and put it towards that at the same time we would have had i not done the transaction we would have hit a ceiling in terms of our growth like that is absolutely what would have happened because we would have been competing with other agencies in our space that had private equity money that were scaling really aggressively had massive marketing teams massive sales teams like I, we would not have continued to grow the clip it would have been and we would have probably been forced into doing something else if we wanted to keep growing in some way um, and, you know, we never crossed that bridge as I was, quite frankly, just uh, unsure of our ability to execute on it. Um, and uh, but, you know, it is it is something that, that people run into all the time. And it's um, it's a tough choice. You have to really it, it is a very much a big gamble at that point, because if it doesn't go well, you've just sunk massive amounts of energy capital into doing something. And, you know, then you've distracted yourself from the main core business that may have been doing very, very well and been very profitable. I think there's an argument that it could go both ways. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, look, that's really interesting. And thank, thanks for sharing that insight. I mean, it's it, it, to me, it kind of really makes sense why you were such a good portfolio acquisition, right? I mean, if you've got this large company that's already doing other forms of marketing, other services, and they don't do what you do, or they've tried it and they've not been very good at it, and they can just bolt you in, and now you're the experts and you're already an industry leader, um, it, it just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's, I mean that's that's a typical portfolio strategy, especially for you know lines of business that that they're not in, but are again they're like ancillary to what they they do, right? And so it's then you have the cross sell functionality, and um, you know there's there's just a ton of synergies that go into that. It's it's the one plus one equals three concept, right? It's, it's really kind of what it, what it is. Absolutely, but that cross sell scenario is coming from a base of a much larger company with bigger clients and more of them and all that sort of stuff, right? So it just yeah, once again, I mean it ticks all the boxes. Um, I am curious to understand a little bit of the, um, you know, can you talk us through what it was like from the deal? So, so that when you you meet the buyer, did that did these buyers approach you and and kind of, or did you approach them? And and how long did it all take? Like that whole process. So we again, it's a small industry, and and so the the company that acquired Streamline is uh, names Acceleration Partners, and they're they're actually. They were our competitor. Um, They're a good deal larger than us, um, but they did effectively the same thing. We, we worked in a very similar way: big enterprise clients, highly strategic work. And and I had known the founders for years, and we were very close with them. We were, we were frenemies, if you want to call it that. And kind of the same way with every agency owner in our space, like we got kind of all know each other. And um, so we were um, we had been talking to a different group um, for for a while, and. We were getting to a point, this was at the end of 2020. So uh, the pandemic had happened, uh, world ended. Uh, I, I was at that point just really burnt out. I mean, it was, you go from 
running a company for years and the stress and everything goes into that to then going into, is my business going to make it through this? I'm not sure, you know, what, what's going to happen. I mean, just the, the stress and anxiety that was born out of that experience was not something I want to go through again. And, and so we were, we were really entertaining deep conversations with um, a, a, another group that had private equity money and was a very aggressive acquirer and, and really good guys that liked him a lot. We were, we were sort of negotiating um, an LOI and I randomly reached out to the, um, this, the president of the, of the firm that ended up acquiring us, not around the deal or anything like that. I actually asked him a question about something in our industry. And he, we ended up hopping on a call and I was just chit chatting with him and he was, you know, asking him what was going on, how, how business was. And, you know, he was like, well, you know, we got something really interesting, you know, that we, we're going to announce, uh, you know, in, in a few weeks and you're going to be the first one that we call. And I, you know, the light bulb went off I'm like, Oh, great. You guys are getting acquired. That's really interesting. And I was like, well, you know, Matt, um, it's interesting you say that I'm looking at a piece of paper right now that like you guys would probably not want me to sign. So and he's like, hold on, hold that, hold that thought. I'm going to make two phone calls. And I'll get right back to you. And so he hung up Bob, then the, the founder of acceleration partners called me two minutes later. He's like, Hey, listen, like on, on the download, we're doing a deal right now. Let me call the buyer and the private equity group and see if I can disclose anything to you. Five minutes after that, he calls me back and, uh, the, uh, uh, managing director of Mountain Gate Capital is on the line, Bennett, and and Mountain Gate is a private equity firm that I actually knew very well. I met with them previously. I they're like the Harvard of private equity for service firms in the U.S. They've had tremendous success with service businesses, and like I wanted to work with them, and I was actually trying to sell myself into one of their portfolio companies previously. So I'd met with the guys at Mountain Gate. Anyway, so so they got on the line. They're like, "Look, we're closing this deal with Acceleration Partners at the end of November." Um, we can give you an LOI right now. Our deal with them won't actually be done, but you have to kind of take it as good faith that we're going to get this thing done and we'll wrap you guys up before the end of the year. And so within that phone call, they put together their management uh, presentation and everything over the weekend. It was The call was on Friday. They turned around this, this massive proposal by Sunday evening, sent it to us along with an LOI. We did a couple of turns on that and signed it on that Monday. So it was like four days of, of just conversations. But like the thing that impressed me is like they they were like, we, you know, you guys were the first target on our list anyways. We want to do this deal with you. We're going to work through the weekend. Um, and it, it ended up being a better offer than uh, the group that I had been talking to just in, from a financial perspective and then also getting in at the early stage of that portfolio to get the uh, growth out of it. And so we ended up signing it at that point. So it was, it was a very quick very quick LOI process. And then the close was done in 45 days in the middle of Q4 at the end of 2020, which was interesting to go through that. That is, that's phenomenal. Four days. I mean, seriously, yeah. I think you've just broken some kind of record there, right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's phenomenal. Well, I, 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 but back to, back to the points that I was talking about previously about having conversations and like knowing your market value, what the industry is doing and everything else. It was like, you know, I was not unrealistic in the expectation of a multiple, right? It, you know, I, I, you can't go in there at our stage and be like, I want a 15X on my EBITDA, right? And that would have killed the deal, right? We knew what the industry multiples were. It's not like you're gonna go in and, and ask for something outrageously more than that. So know, knowing that, knowing how things work, understanding the potential players in the space, right? And again, like once you're ready to move quickly, like you, you kind of have to in certain cases, right? A lot of deals get done in that quick, rapid succession because the timing is right. And folks that like drag things out and want to negotiate and waiver on offers and it, like deals can fall apart just as easily. So you know, timing was right. The buyer was right. The numbers were right. And we closed that thing as fast as we possibly could. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. I, I, I love the fact, and this uh, I, I think is another good takeaway for people thinking about transactions is you, you can move fast like that when you've got motivated buyer, motivated seller, there's already an element of trust because you kind of knew these guys a little bit. There's like the, the fact that the buyers were doing this bigger deal, they've invested money, they're moving, there's momentum, right? Like it's it's not like somebody tapping you on the shoulder and kind of just sniffing around a little bit and kind of asking you for, for information, but not they're not committed. And and I think that's the that's a massive difference between your situation and and I think where we've seen a lot of businesses come to us saying they've just been frustrated. Yeah. 
it, it, and it, and it definitely happens too. I mean, like we had a lot of people knock on the uh, knock on the shoulder and say, hey, we want to learn more. And it, it never went anywhere. The, the thing that did accelerate it, and we, we finally after, or I finally after, uh, again, this is, this is learning, uh, thinking I can do everything myself after trying to sell the you know, closed deals or whatever, doing it on my own. We finally hired an investment bank to do it for us. Um, and they got the deal done. And, and, and I can definitely say that like without them, we would have never actually closed the thing. There's no way we would have done it in Q4. They were instrumental in A, getting the deal formalized, negotiating the LOI for us, and handling the financial difficult conversations, and then helping us actually process the transaction and move through all the due diligence and everything. Like there is no way we would have done it without them. Yeah, that's a, well, look, another great tip, you know, having a good deal team around you to help you get it done. Um, can I ask a question? I don't, once again, don't want to tread on confidentiality here. Um, but w- when we've seen, a, you know, all of our deals that we've done and observed, I, I find that consideration to the vendors tends to be paid in one, two, or through all of these following buckets. Um, you know, obviously there's cash up front. There can sometimes be a deferred component that's just not at risk. Um, but, you know, hey, we're going to pay you in increments over a couple of years. And then there's potentially an earn out. Um, so without without getting into micro detail, can you did, did you ha- can you tell us what sort of buckets were involved for yourself? Yeah, and, and I can actually disclose a lot of this because Mountain Gate's pretty famous for for the way they operate in this world. So so they don't like earnouts, and they they generally don't do them, which is uh, a very attractive component of, of doing this sort of deal because everything else we ever looked at always had at least a year, if not two or three years of an earnout. Um, which which generally uh, earnouts don't always end well for for the seller, and most times they don't. Um, so yeah, we, we didn't have an earnout. Uh, the, the structure of the deal, um, it was uh, about se- I think it was yeah, about seventy percent cash, thirty percent equity um, in the portfolio company, and and in every single scenario that uh, at least Mountain Gate and this private equity firm has been in, uh, the folks that sort of sold into the platform and rolled their equity over made made considerably more from that equity than they did of the initial like cash. Now I, I wasn't gonna uh, sell the business and you know, leave all that money on the table. So you, you pull enough out to like, yeah, if things go sideways, and I never see another dollar from it. Like I'm still set, but um, you know, the ideal scenario is that, that that equity that you roll into it ends up quadrupling in, you know, four or five years. And that's, that's what they've done really consistently time and time again. And so that's, that's why you do it that way. But yeah, they had no earn out. Uh, there was, there was a, yeah, an escrow. I think 10% of the deal was held back in escrow for 12 months uh, just to cover any sort of, crazy scenario happening. Um, but other than that, yeah, it was really straightforward. Um, and again, that's why we really liked the way the deal was structured. It was there's no, no strings attached, very simple. Um, and, and, you know, easy to do a deal again from a, from a seller's perspective, you know, exactly what you're getting. Yeah, that's, that's great. And congrats on, on obviously negotiating a great deal. It's, it, it is a funny one, you know, and I, I talk to a lot of buyers, you know, we, we're doing a lot of different transactions, but it's, it's funny how often so many buyers, I think, are trying to hammer home this earnout component because, and let's be honest, they're just worried. That's just risk mitigation, right? They're worried about something. They're trying to manage risk. Um, sometimes they're trying to manage risk a little too heavily on their own behalf at the expense of the vendor, which it, which I'm always sort of pointing out that you've got to find some middle ground here because your push to de-risk for yourself, your push to the, in this direction of earnouts actually can just burn goodwill as well. You know, the last thing you want is that a, a seller comes over and just despises you for the way you behaved and doesn't want to be there anymore. Um, you know, and for anyone who's listened to a number of the episodes of this podcast, I've had plenty of guests who just walked away from there and out because they just went, I just don't want to be here anymore. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess this always to me comes back to the number one rule of transactions, and that is don't damage the asset you're buying. And, and often that includes the people. Yeah, I think it's so important. Um, you know, and, and I would say, like, being on the buy side now, and we are, you know, acquiring and, and, and doing that. I'm, I'm leaving a, a heavy hand in that. I, I think we have conversations. If, if, if we're really that concerned about a potential acquisition target where we would have to put some heavy earnout component into it, it's not a good deal for us. Like we kind of like, if we're not certain that like, hey, this is going to be the right strategic fit. It's going to be the right uh, fit from a culture perspective. It's it's going to be that again, the one plus one equals three sort of thing. We love the management team, everything else. Like we shouldn't be doing the deal. Like at the end of the day, I mean, it's if you if you really need to put 
that much, uh, you had to hedge your risk on it by, by putting some massive earnout on it. I, I think, yeah, there's just so many potential complications that come with that. And, and as you said, like, unless it, like if, you, if you're a seller and you have some long earnout and, you know, uh, six months into it, you realize you're not going to hit that earnout. The energy that you're going to put into that business is now non-existent, right? You are looking for your exit. You're out of there as soon as you can. And I, I think you're just sort of hamstringing things if you do it that way, like as a buyer. Um, I, so they very much believe in the in the philosophy of Mountain Gate. And again, like they've they've been really successful at it. So I think you can't knock their uh, their process. Yeah, for sure. And I think I think this comes back to one of our early comments in this conversation is about culture, right? I mean, you got somebody there who is bitter about things, and you know they've lost their energy. I mean, the the knock on effect to company culture could be far more damaging and far more of an issue as well. So it's yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's it, it, so much of these things can be a delicate kind of balance. But at the end of the day, as as you're pointing out with Mountain Gate and, and companies like them, there are well beaten, well worn paths on how to do this and do this well. And I think if we we take the lessons from those kind of transactions, you can certainly reduce the risk of things going wrong. Yeah, I think also when you're when you're especially if you're if you're looking at private equity firms, and there's a lot of them out there, right? The one thing that I will say, and again, I'm not trying to Bennett or the guys at Mountgate listen to this. I'm not trying to uh, you know, blow you guys up too much, but um, you know, we had we had all these conversations, and and every every private equity conversation usually ended up up with them asking, "So you're making X amount of dollars with this many people. How do you make this many more dollars with the same amount of people? Right? How do you squeeze more blood out of the stone? Right? It really, without without doubt, they all kind of got to that point, and like. Mountgate never asked that. Like it was like, tell us about the culture. Like, what do you, you know, what are you most proud of? How do you, how do you reward people? How do you motivate them? And like, they're so focused on that. And I think that's what makes them kind of unique in this space. Because again, like what they've, as you said, they, they figured this model out. It's like you build great teams around great people. You enable it with technology, and you have a massive result down the road. And like, it's killed it. Like they've done it really, really well. So it aligned with what I wanted to do. Um, you know, in terms of the the, the type of uh, acquire that I would want to work with. I knew that my people were going to a good company that was run well, that cared about people, that had the same cultural uh, philosophies that we did. And like that was even more important than the monetary aspect of things. Yeah, uh, it's, it makes absolute sense. Um, John, you know, I could talk to you about this stuff all day. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm a little cognizant of time because you've been very generous so far. And I know we've been chatting for over an hour here. So, um, mate, I, I, I want to ask, I mean, are you are you happy with people reaching out and connecting with you and and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm uh, I, I, I'm not super uh, uh, visible on on social media these days, but um, you know, LinkedIn's always a great way to find me. Um, anybody who wants to connect and, and chat, I'm always always happy to talk um, uh, entrepreneurship and, and give advice to anybody that's that's you know, in similar stages that I've been in. Um, I think it's uh, you know if anyone is listening and they are looking at, at doing an acquisition or, or selling, um, you know, like it's a it's a it's a very rewarding process. But like the one thing I'll leave anybody with is just like make sure you do it with the right buyer. It is the biggest thing for me is uh, you know I found the right partner in in, in both the private equity group and the agency. It, it, it's resulted in you know it's a life changing event for me, which is great. But also like I feel good about the transaction more than anything else. Like. I know that I sold it to the right group, and I know that we, you know, we've we've done well by our employees and by our, our clients and everything else. And um, you know, that's that's the one thing that I could stress, and it's made it made it really great for me. Like I, I actually love what I'm doing now. I enjoy working with these guys, and not a lot of people that have sold will be able to say that, but I can unequivocally kind of answer that <laughs> very easily. Like I, I like I like the the role I'm in, and and very happy the way things uh, worked out. That's awesome. And if anybody's thinking about um, affiliate marketing and, and how to take that approach, you know, clearly John's still over at Acceleration Partners. That's what they do. Um, please reach out, go and speak to them because um, uh, it certainly sounds to me like you're going to get the best in the industry helping you. So, um, Jonathan, um, mate, thank you once again for your time. Thank you for your generosity. You, you've shared so much with us and I just know our listeners will get a lot of value out of this. And uh, if nothing else from me personally, man, it's been really great chatting to you. Yeah, it was great talking to you too. Thanks so much for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, yeah, thanks so much. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. 
Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.